Days and nights of constant travel were hard on the red. Truly, Tisri made no friends in the fall. Likely her older cousin, Randall, had carefully planned his trip. For extra energy, he would have chosen fatty breads, for stamina, dried herbs, and for vigor, nuts and whole grains. However, she partook only what she could gather, bitter moss, herbs, woody roots, fungi, and the like, as she made breakneck speed to reach him. Unlike Randall, who also carried clothes, maps, and equipment, the Red carted in her knapsack a few personal and some stolen items, a scarf from a dead woman, two tens of cooked pulley found on a soldier's corpse, her family etching on rice paper, her hunting knife, a comb, two undergarments, her sword, and about her neck her personal zambata, a small ocean stone from the great sea given to her at birth. A zambata is dipped in the blood from the umbilical cord of a newborn and then kept in the child's cradle, where it is believed the peculiar medicinal qualities of the blood protects the infant. Not until the stone loses its dark red color is the small pebble removed. Often a family will keep their children's zambatas as mementos or keepsakes. Oksana believed her zambata brought her safety, for oddly it had never lost its original color. Indeed, it had darkened only slightly with oil and sweat gathered from her neck. To say, though, that self-pity consumed her would be wrong. Indeed, with a resolute single-mindedness, she maintained her regular meditations to banish the worry that clung onto her. Unaware of themselves, the left not knowing the right, she chanted the hunter's mantra. As one looks into the mirrored surface of water, but does not see one's own reflection, she looked past her own self-care to seek her cousin. Her constant pace earned her considerable distance, although a few days after she crossed the confluence of the stony Magda flowing into the kind river, she had a frightful delay. Oksana knew that the hordes of raiders traveled south. However, a few traveled north to convey messages and alert their command. Thus, as she turned west, she could expect sentries on her flanks. She never anticipated any heading in direct line with her position. Three days after recycling clothes from the corpses of a particularly gruesome skirmish, the red spied warriors going the wrong way. As fall expanded, the lesser light from the sister moons illuminated one part of the sky, while the orange semicircle of the low autumnal sun radiated the other. Thus both provided decent light for Oksana to catch sight of the peculiar figures moving in her direction. What fools would openly reveal their position, she counseled herself. From their speed, she gauged they would shortly intersect with her route. Unfortunately, the lower end of the Sumita Mountains, where the hills cradled the kind river, boxed her in. If I retreat down the path, she purposed, I would have to keep retreating. Oksana spied upslope a dense cover of wax-winged cedars in Salal. Ah, my shield, she told herself. The sun's halo faded and left night alone in the lackluster moon's light. Six soldiers arrived at dusk. Three were regular, nondescript clansmen. Two sported crimson colors, but one was a black trace, who wore the ancient felt of departure, a heavy textile used for internment. A trace is literally a man who has tasted blood and liked it. The Trace cult was outlawed after the Fire Wars. 
A single raven's feather pierced his blackened left ear, and about his neck hung the rotting earlobes of his latest kills, perhaps fifty in number. This man, or as the red preferred, this animal, sat alone from the rest, who displayed their dread and passively endorsed his isolation. Oksana watched the group eat, choose shifts for night watch, and then bed down below her hiding place. No one spoke as they worked with gestures, even as they changed their shifts. The black trace slept as well, or at least he appeared to sleep, for he did not move all night and did not take watch. He rested in a reclined position with a bedroll supporting the small of his back and a rock for a headrest. Before his repose, though, he looked around his surroundings, meticulously inspected his location, and closed his eyes. Oksana had not anticipated the crew to camp so close. Apprehensive of alerting her presence by snoring, she refrained from sleep. During the watch of the first sentry, Oksana wrestled with two perplexing problems. First, what interest required the soldiers to march from the west to the east? And second, why had the Black Trace cult returned? During the second shift without benefit of fire for warmth, she kept her mind alert by reciting the prayers to the regents, if they existed anymore. Oksana had never questioned her recitation of seemingly harmless petitions, though her uncle Pan never permitted such. With the destruction of the realm, however, Pan's wisdom seemed better founded than hers. She recited them anyway. For her latter query, the presence of the fabled Black Traces, the macabre mercenaries, was not a difficult puzzle to solve. In the Old Fire War, the Dark Sect presented the most formidable obstacle. The return of the cult signaled a new era of Fire Wars by the modern Heartborns. For her former query, Oksana hit upon an answer by asking herself from where they came. The large war parties she had observed marched south towards Glendary with its numerous villages and towns. Furthermore, as these men did not conceal their attire as soldiers, they were not misdirected spies. The crux of the question became why the small lot of soldiers would avoid or leave the battle sites. Likely, they were messengers, otherwise the Black Trace would have stayed at the front lines. They have taken Glendary. She gasped in a whisper. Before the sun broke the horizon, the disparate group picked up their few gear and headed east along the Kind River. Their departure relieved Oksana, but before she restarted, a catnap would supply her much-needed rest. She found a supply of heshbow mushrooms beneath a rotting oak and chewed them for breakfast. Observing the route ahead and chewing her tough fungi, she happened to notice six different figures on the exact route of the previous group, which again headed in her direction. Could this be a dream? She strained to examine the figures in the early light. The characters were identical, three nondescript, two in red, and one lone figure in dull black. At the unforeseen presence of a second group, Oksana decided to wait all day if she had to until the territory was free. She would not become a victim by rushing about. 
Three hours after the second party passed her camouflaged position, and with no other soldier parties in sight, the Red stirred to rejoin her search for Randall. As she returned to the passage in the direction of the Tisri Pass, she reconsidered the recent events. Two parties, each in different bands, enough apart that they were out of eye's view from the other, headed east as if pulled by some magical cord. Various schemes filtered through her brain. What is the purpose of identical groups traveling the opposite direction than the armies driving south? First a black trace which accompanies two red-clothed men, which accompanies three regulars? No eating, no fires, no speaking, no noise, no hint where they had been. She checked herself when she realized she was speaking aloud. Others might hear her. Not spies. Not marauders, seeking random victims, not anything, but messengers, she whispered to herself. If Glendary has fallen, the northern route out from Fair would take them to the first divide, then east to run alongside the Kind River, and then east along the Sumita, the second divide, to the coast, or possibly north at the foothills. Oksana walked through the day without stopping. She calculated that the two-party stratagem ideally provided assurance to carry urgent messages. If either party were captured, that lot would become the decoy, freeing the other party to deliver the communication. If her assumptions were true, Glendary had succumbed, and the realm was forsaken in the grip of the heartborn clansmen. Oksana's deductions stuck in her mind like shards of glass in resin. Far away from the double threat she had met earlier, Oksana ground down the details bit by bit as if to sift their meaning until their sharp edges no longer abraded. Near dusk, she realized she had walked in thought all day and had not stopped to eat or even refresh herself. Exhausted from the lack of sleep, she located a large boulder with a cleft her size about fifty paces off the trail to spend the night. Her mind raced, and one last time she ran her observations through her mental gristmill. She visualized the soldiers' clothes, faces, body shapes, everything to remember something she had overlooked. A disregarded detail might lead to a different inference. However, despite her efforts, no other conclusion came to mind except from Glendary to Zex, the world was burning. Awake and wanting fresh air, Randall poked his nose past the covers of his makeshift bed in the darkened cavern of the Hermit. A familiar, sharp pain in his lungs, lingering side effects from his overdose of McLeish's best, broached a foul mood. The agony worsened his disposition, but he needed to relieve himself outside. What are you doing? A voice bounced through the air as coarse hands wrapped around him. The hands pulled Randall out of the cave and onto the high overhang where his animal pack rested. You should not leave her. Another voice interrupted the first voice. I, I, I'm, I'm sick, Randall answered with discontent. Yes, you are sickly, agreed the other, 
Let me entreat you to stay, for I have some herbs. No, I've done well. I'm ready to return to my own world, he continued in his dream. There is no place here for that kind. You are too far from your range, a disconcerting voice carried on. Mandel tried to follow as his eyes adjusted to the light. A knuckled hand pointed at him. Too far. But as a gesture, a kind token for him, the first voice pleaded. Not much chance unless his health improves. Really now, leave him. Think, Randall, the second voice chimed. The queer spinella weed in McLeish's best had aided Randall through his nightly hallucinations with its narcotic influences, yet he had none left. Slowly recognition filled his mind as if carelessly dispensing water from a bucket into a narrow-necked bottle. His heart raced in irregular patterns and chills shook him. Tasting the dregs, the bitter, chemical smack of McLeish's post-rapture induced a general anxiety. He fought to focus on the voices talking to him as one tries to grasp a slippery fish. Too many conversations interrupted his concentration. Their dialogue played tag inside his mind. His unmistakable dependency on the drug pursued him as much as he craved it. I don't believe this is better, a foreign voice uttered. He's lost something. Silence impregnated the air. No, there's something else, another voice interrupted. All voices stopped as someone placed Randall on the ground. Sounds of scuffling feet faded into the distance. Tran moved Randall to the floor of the cave lit by a single candle. He was worried as Randall's hallucinations had dangerously led him to the high outer ledge. He cupped his hand and whispered into Randall's ear, Where is that stash of McLeish? Tran rummaged through Randall's pockets until he found the wrinkled leather pouch. Although its contents were gone, the hermit scraped out the gummy residue into a silver box. As the hermit labored, the pungent odor of spinella scented the air, and although immobile, Randall reacted to the aroma. A swelling sea of nausea floated him on an exhilarating high. Euphoria and disorder surrounded him. His lungs struggled to capture air. His heart rate sped up. Desire beckoned to enter paradise. The hermit tightly shut the box and hid it for safety. All that remained to do was wait for Randall's lucidity to return. <laughs>